All right, we are in the second week of uh, what, what we're calling the Creed, which is a series that's focused on this really beautiful ancient document called the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it is a creed that we have spoken as God's people for generations. It's, uh, a creed is this formalized statement of what we believe, and, and we call this creed the Apostles' Creed. There's, there's other creeds, maybe you've heard of the Nicene Creed, but this is the Apostles' Creed that we're studying here. And, and we said last week, this creed dates all the way back to 140 A.D., uh, the, the earliest manuscript that we have that contends for the use of the creed in the early church comes from 326 AD. It's a, it's a document written by some Roman historians that talk about this creed. So this is a richly beautiful, richly uh, composed, beautiful creed that we've been saying for millennia as God's people. And it is something for us to pay attention to. Now, I, I will say this. Uh, I did go to question in our uh, communication in one of our connection cards about uh, whether this is in the Bible or not. So I, just to answer that question, I think uh, there was a lady that wrote that question. I got to talk to her in person. Uh, look, if you ever have a question about what we're teaching, um, I'd love to hear it. Just put your name on there so I can, I can reach out and talk to you about those things. Because the reality is, is if you're confused it may mean that other people are confused. And I can certainly try to expound upon things next time or talk to you personally about what's going on. And so I, I just, to answer that, this is not in your Bible. You won't find the creed anywhere in Scripture. You can look as much as you, you want. Um, and so understand this, that, that this isn't Scripture, but it, it speaks towards Scripture. The, the earliest compilation of the New Testament that we have comes from the 4th century. So that's between 350 and 400 AD. That's the first New Testament that we have that is compiled. We forget sometimes in this day and age with our technology and access where we can view any document that we ever want if we would just research and pay a fee where we could read any book or article or letter in a matter of seconds, we forget that it would have taken years upon decades for our brothers and sisters in Christ in this early church to do the same thing. And so somebody wise in early leadership in the church said, hey, we need to get together. We, we need to figure this out. Because uh, the process of the books of the apostles like Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and the Gospels of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John coming together would have taken a long time. They didn't have cars or the internet. They didn't travel like we did. Xerox did not exist. Making copies was very laborsome and difficult. And so the process of the New Testament took a very long time. They didn't have Bibles the way that we have Bibles. And so they got together and said, let's get our core beliefs. Let's bring what we know. Maybe we have a gospel. Maybe we have a letter from Paul. Let's get the, the tenets of our faith. And so they made this creed, this document that would be a part of their traditions and their church, a part of rituals. This would be a confession in baptized. You would memorize it and recite it as a confession of faith when you were baptized. And so these early church, churches, were, 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 they were relying on third and second hand accounts of Jesus. And they were relying on information that didn't always agree 
And so they got together and they said, let's make this creed, this document. And so last week, we walked through the very first line of this creed that says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And so even in this day and age that is chaotic, there is still something innate in us that defers to divinity, that defers to a God, that defers to something supreme being over it all. To say, I believe in God is pretty easy. To ask somebody if they believe in God would set yourself up to get a lot of yeses. But that phrase, I believe in God, lacks any sort of definition that might help me know what God is, who God is, and what he wants from me. To say, I just believe in God, makes no demand on us to conform or submit to anything. It is this novel thought that leaves God as something that I get to determine in my own wisdom. But the moment that you say that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, you have made a very specific God with some very specific attributes and some very specific abilities that demand my attention and bid for my affection. You can't say that I believe in God, the Father Almighty, without believing that God is both near and personal. And you can't say that I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, without recognizing the power and the might of that God. And so this creed says that we have a God that is personal and near, all while being powerful and mighty. And that is a God that you have to do something with. That is a God that you have to account for. That is a God that you have to submit to. The reality and the knowledge of that God should shape us. It should shape us where the vagary of saying, I believe in God allows me to shape God to fit my truth. And to say, so to say, I believe in God would be to say, I believe that I am God because I ultimately get to define who he is. But our brothers and sisters defined it to say, I believe in God, the father almighty creator of heaven and earth. And so this week, we want to look at the segment of the creed that follows. These three lines in the creed that, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. This is where we want to head today in our time to walk through these. So thus far in our study of the Apostles' Creed, we've walked through these statements. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so in that text, in that creed, we have identified God the Father. And this week we talk about God the Son, Jesus, his only son, our Lord, and the Holy Spirit. And so you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And those are the three components or persons of the Trinity, what we in the Christian faith called the Trinity. And so, listen, in our time today, we are going to walk through this seemingly difficult concept of the Trinity. Because it's important that we get right belief in this. We have, for generations, 
try to oversimplify the Trinity so we can grasp it. And I'm here to tell you, as much as I'm going to teach on this, you are going to have questions, and I'll tell you later why I think that's still a good thing. And so we're going to spend our time walking through what the Trinity is, why it exists, and then we're going to turn our attention to one person in that Trinity coming to earth in flesh for our benefit through the Holy Spirit, and ultimately we'll end our time by talking about why this belief matters and how it affects how we live. And so that's our task today. And so let's just, let's just jump in here and get started. Uh, first and foremost, you, you will never find the word Trinity anywhere in your, your testaments. You won't find it in the Bible. You won't find it in any scripture. The understanding of the Trinity comes from the full breath of scripture. It comes from reading the full story of God. This is why it's so important when we read Scripture that we compare it to the whole Word of God and not just establish theology based upon that little section of Scripture. The entire breadth of Scripture speaks to a trinity. Trinity is this condensed word that says tri-unity. Tri-unity. Three beings in perfect unity. You may have heard the, the phrase triune, or triune God, or Godhead, but it's all the same thing. It's about the Trinity, three beings in one God. And look, that may sound like Looney Tunes. Are we talking about Daffy Duck here? That's crazy talk. But this is what Scripture compels to us. And so I just want to build the case. We're going to walk through a lot of Scripture today. I just want to build the case to build our faith and knowledge in the area of the Trinity. And so the first glimpse that we get that this person, God, is more complex and maybe outside of our scope of understanding is right in the beginning of creation. From the very first chapter in Genesis, God is communicated as something a little bit more than what we can understand. So in Genesis 1:26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every other creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Super important that you read those words us and ours because it implies that there is a plurality of beings here. It doesn't say that I'm going to make man in my image, but us in our image. So right from the beginning, we notice that God has a different essence than just one entity. And that may lead us to believe in a plurality of gods. Well, maybe there's lots of different gods that created this earth. Maybe there was a cosmic think tank, a council of gods that created things and said, oh, I'm going to vote for that. I like it. I like the one that moves with his arms. But scripture over and over in God's story talks about committing to worshiping one true God and condemning those who worship multiple gods. God rebuked the worship of polytheism or worshiping multiple gods, and he affirmed and demanded the worship of one true God. There is a segment of scripture in Deuteronomy uh, in chapter 6 that says this. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. This segment of Scripture is called the Shama, and it would be uh, a, a, a commonplace in the Israelite culture of that day for you to have this memorized, to write it everywhere. This would be a prayer or confession of what you believed as an early Israelite, God's early people. And so that word shama comes from the very first word in verse 4. Shama means hear, listen, or obey. So it's listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so here's this vastly important text saying that God is one. And then you have in the New Testament, you have Jesus' brother, earthly brother James, in his letter in James 2 He says this, you believe that God is one, and that is good, that is right. Our Ten Commandments say, you shall have no other God but me. And so scripture is rich in this idea of the oneness of God. But yet it compels what can be a confusing makeup of that God. In our Old Testament, there's language in scripture that talks about the Spirit of God hovering across the earth. It's there in creation. There's this scripture that multiple places in the Old Testament that talks about the angel of the Lord. And there are many scholars that believe that that is the Son, Jesus, before the incarnation, before he came as the baby Jesus. This is Jesus in the Old Testament. And so lots of different language that compels three different beings but one God. Three persons, but one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have scripture in Matthew. Jesus in his great command in Matthew 28 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here's Jesus speaking in plain language the nature of God as triune, tri-unity. Now, there are some people who will take this verse or take verses that surround the idea of the Trinity, and they will teach that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are just different functions or modes of God throughout the history of the world, that they are functions that are never coexisting. So what they would say is that you had God the Father, creator, and then he became the Son, and now he's become the Spirit. Distinct, but never coexisting. And there are prominent teachers that teach this. Like uh, the popular T.D. Jakes, he teaches this. It's a form of belief called modalism, that God worked in different modes throughout history. Now, certainly, this can bring some simplicity to this conversation about God, that, hey, he just came in three different forms. He's the same person, three different forms. The problem is, is mostly the Bible. It doesn't agree with Scripture. It doesn't contend for truth. The Bible speaks of a coexisting trinity of God that has always been present. And we can see it if we just look in the baptism of Jesus. 
If we look into Matthew 3, starting in verse 13, it says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said this, said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So in this singular grouping of Scripture, you have all three persons of the Trinity present in one moment. You have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, the dove-like descending of the Spirit, and then you have the voice of the Father saying, this is my Son who I'm well pleased. Like, that can't be modalism. They exist together at the same time. Jesus says in John 10, 30, that I and the Father are one. He said, if you know me, you know the Father. Where did Jesus go after he ascends to heaven? He goes to sit on the right hand of the Father to intercede on our behalf, which means he intervenes with the Father to say, she's mine, and he's mine, they're mine, mine. They don't just disappear. They're always coexisting. And I want to fight for this because it matters. It matters because God matters, and it matters because it really affects how we live our lives. The Trinity contends for a different life in our understanding of it, in the practicalities of how we live. And I want to get there, but at first I want to build up right belief here, contend for right belief. Jesus in our scriptures confirms and upholds the deity of the Holy Spirit. He confirms the distinction of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Christ says these words, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak of His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Whatever the Father has, Jesus says, is mine. And whatever I have, Jesus says, the Spirit has to give to you. This is the divinity of the Holy Spirit. And then you have Scripture over and over again talking about Jesus as divine, as God. You have verses like in Hebrews 1. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Upholds the universe by the word of His power. And so you have the Spirit, and He is God. You have Jesus, and He is God. And then you have the Father, and He is God. Three persons, one essence, one God. Now we have, over the millennia, tried to make this applicable and practical. And look, I totally appreciate practicality. I, I totally appreciate that. And so we've tried to contend the Trinity as like H2O. 
Like this is an analogy that we may use. That H2O can come in the form of steam, water, and ice. And that is like the three persons of God. It's all H2O, but different forms. And then we've gone to say that, that it's like the sun. That the sun gives us light and heat and radiation. But there's still just one sun. And certainly there is some elements that, that can be helpful in that. But it doesn't come close to describing what the true Trinity is. Because in the Trinity, every person is equal in attribute and equal in godness. They're, they're completely united. One is not lesser than another. Distinct and individual. And so here are seven statements that we can say about the Trinity that I think provide good understanding. I, I would say this, they still leave questions and we want to try to answer, but seven statements that are helpful in understanding the Trinity. Uh, number one is, is that the Father is God. Uh, number two is that the Son is God. Number three is that the Holy Spirit is God. Number four, that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not the Father. There is only one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The, the Spirit is not the Father. And there is only one God. And look, that, yeah, it brings clarity, but it, it also leaves questions. And so uh, the, the best way for us to understand the Trinity is to see it in the gospel. Because in the gospel, you have all three persons of the Trinity working themselves out. And so when we talk about the Trinity, picture this. You have God the Father that appoints. You have Jesus the Son that accomplished. And you have the Holy Spirit that applies. So three things. You have the Father that appoints, the Son accomplished, and the Holy Spirit applies. And so when we read this line in the creed and we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, we have all three persons of God working inside of that phrase. You have the Trinity at work. You have the Father who wills it, the Spirit that applies it, and in this situation conceives through the Holy Spirit, a child, and then you have the Son who will accomplish it. Now, it's important that we remember in this phrase why God is conceiving a Son through the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary. After our fall, after sin and death enter a world, God works to reconcile His creation back to Himself. We are a broken creation, and we can see that all the way back to Genesis 3, humanity has found itself plagued with a sinful condition, meaning this, you don't do acts of sin, and that makes you a sinner. You are a sinner, and so you do acts of sin. It is a condition. King David says, I was born into iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. 
Sin is not an action, it is a condition. And to break the curse of sin and death, you could not have a savior that came from the line of man. You have to bring in divinity to break the curse of sin. So God, through the Holy Spirit, conceives through the blameless Virgin Mary, a son, as a perfect sacrifice for our sins, meaning all the demands of justice that God has in our sins. And then what do we know about Christ? Christ goes on to suffer and die. He accomplished what the Father appointed and willed. And after his death, after his resurrection, he ascends to the throne, into heaven. And who comes? The Holy Spirit comes to what? Apply the work and the glory of Christ in your life. He testifies to Christ in you. And so you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together. This is where we fully see God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit divinely working, never redundant or interchangeable. A trinity that is in perfect union, perfect relationship, perfect distinction, and always coexisting. And you may say, well, why does that matter? It matters a lot. It matters a whole lot. And this is why we fight for understanding. If we believe that God has existed outside of time and space, which we do, there has never been a beginning to God and there will never be an ending to God. It means that he has existed as three in one for the entirety of that existence. God has always been Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And look, that may sound crazy, but I think we should be grateful that we serve a God where three can be one. I don't want to serve a God that is able to be comprehended in my own human brain. I am pleased and thankful to serve a God that doesn't operate in my world where one thing has to be one thing. I love worshiping a God where three can be one because it means this, is His grace might even be bigger for me than I could ever imagine. That His love for me could be bigger than what I ever could envision in my life. And so it's okay that this is outside of our comprehension. If the Bible says that a thousand years is like a year to God, and a year is like a thousand years to God, I'm comfortable with not fully understanding this. And so here you have this eternal God in three persons, one God that has been in perfect relationship from the beginning. And if we remember from Jesus' baptism, he looks down at the Son and says, this is my Son whom I am well pleased. And that relationship has existed since the beginning of time. God has always been pleased with the Son. So it means this, is that love was never created. It has always existed in God. Love predates creation. Predates creation. God didn't have to go outside of himself to find love or to be love. Love is eternal. When you have a triune God, you have an always loving God. Peace predates creation. It's always existed in the triunity of God. Three distinct people, one complete unity in love and peace and contentment with each other. 
And so the first thing that we learn from the Trinity it's important for us to understand is there can be unity in diversity. You know, this is a often thought about concept in our world. Some folks like to exclusively think about our differences, differences, our diversity, on the fact that people are so different. It doesn't seem like some people will ever want to find common ground. It certainly feels like our culture wants to polarize us to that. The Trinity shows us that we can have a profound real and organic unity in diversity through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who are working to complete our salvation. The Father appoints, the Son accomplished, and the Spirit applies. Perfect harmony. Different but the same. And so when God calls us to be of one mind, of one body, of one accord, He's not asking us to do something that's impossible. He's not. He's just asking us to be like him. He is a God of order, a God of harmony. Now look, there are always going to be disunity in the world because of brokenness. But God says, in my church, those of you who trust in my name, your gifts, your talents, be united in those things. Work for one accord, work for one of mine, work to be one body. His Trinity displays this beautiful diversity. God designed you to be united in diversity, and His Trinity speaks towards that. The second thing that the Trinity communicates is this prevailing thought in creation. And so if God is three, and He's in perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect peace, perfect harmony, it means that creation did not come from any sort of lacking on our God's part. God is not cosmically lonely and then created beings so he could be in relationship with them. God has always been self-sufficient. He's always been perfect in love. He did not create something to be in relationship, to control, or to rule over. He is fully satisfied, fully content, fully known, and fully loved in the Trinity. God's creation wasn't a byproduct of his need. It was a display of his glory. It was a display of his glory. It was about his beauty. Out of his love and unity and peace and sufficiency, God created the cosmos, the earth, and you and I, not because we could give him anything, but rather that we would display the glory and grandness, greatness, and majesty of our King. You weren't created from God's lacking or from His need. You were created for His glory. God doesn't need you to give Him anything. He has everything He needs in the Trinity, but in everything He wants to use you show to the world, the universe, his majesty. And that literally means that your life is not about you. It is not about you. It's not about what you can do. It's not about what you can earn. It's not about what you can make. It's about showing and displaying the majesty and the beauty and the flourishing of God, the might and the power of him who made us. And nothing more 
Right belief in the Trinity brings an understanding to ourselves, our nature, our purpose, and our cause. To display his glory, that his beauty would be renowned. And that only happens when we're willing to submit ourselves in humility to a belief in something other than ourselves. That wholeness and purpose and identity is only found when I'm willing to see the beauty of what God did through his Son and the Holy Spirit and die to self, die to self and live for and through him. What does it say about a God who needed nothing from you that still has chosen to be in relationship with you? And it may make you think, well, I'm just that special. God's not looking at you going, oh, I don't know what this guy's got going on. I want to be a part of that team. God needs nothing. Nothing from us. Instead, it shows the unimaginable love and grace that our God has for us that even though we can't give him anything, he still chooses us. It speaks to his beauty, his care, and his love. And in being in relationship with God, in understanding the Trinity, that God needs nothing but to display his glory in you, you flourish because you're doing what you were meant to do. You flourish because you're doing what you were created to do to give honor to God through how I live and what I sacrifice. The Trinity is so important and we should fight for right belief in it and not just toss it aside as too complex because it speaks so much to our identity and our purpose and our cause here on earth. Our God is great. And he's worthy to be praised. Would you pray with me? Father, we just come before you today and uh, we're just minimizers. We just minimize your beauty. We minimize your, your word. We minimize your love. God, we memorize this idea of Trinity. It's too hard for us to understand, and so we just kick it aside and don't want to have to deal with it. Lord, I just pray today that you would fight for us and you would uh, intervene on our behalf, that you would compel our hearts to believe in, in this beautiful Trinity of perfect contentment, perfect relationship, and perfect love that we are invited into by the Son. And that, God, in it, you would help us to see that you are a God that that didn't create us out of your lacking, but out of your glory. And that we would humbly submit ourselves and glad submission to that identity for our flourishing because we are doing what we were created to do. It is not about me. It is about you. And we ask this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.